You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. The simplest version is everyone we do business with is a, is a business in, in some way, shape, or form. And what we're trying to do is take where uh, payment technology and data intersect. That's a place that we create value. And everybody feels like they they know them. You know, those guys usually sit with me, and somebody will walk by and say, "Danny, I saw you play in this in that game." And you know, and it's really personal and really important to to that person to express to the to the athlete or ex-athlete, you know, how much they love watching them play. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 294, Building Maine Businesses, airing for the first time on Sunday, May 7, 2017. Business is booming in Maine. Today, we speak with two individuals who are leading the way in this field. Melissa Smith is the president and CEO of WEX, which is one of three companies in our state to have revenues of more than a billion dollars. William J. Ryan Jr. is the principal owner and chairman of the Maine Red Claws, Portland's NBA development team. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy, is how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. With summer now upon us, I invite you to join us at the Kennebunkport Festival. Five days of celebration centered around food, wine, art, music, and of course, community. This year's festival is June 5th through 10th, and we're especially excited to note that Love Maine Radio's producer, Spencer Albee, and his band are headlining the Maine Craft Music Festival with special guests, the ghosts of Paul Revere. For tickets to the Maine Craft Music Festival and details about all the good times waiting for you at the festival, go to KennyBunkportFestival.com. All of us at Maine Media Collective look forward to seeing you there. Love Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. It's my great pleasure today to speak with Melissa Smith, who is the president and CEO of WEX, um, located in South Portland. Um, I actually don't often get to do a husband and wife separate interviews, but I interviewed Brian Corcoran, your husband, back in May of 2015. So now I feel like we're just like doing the full circle, the whole family thing. Yeah, and he had a great time. Oh, well, I'm glad to he hear was, that. Uh, no, he did. He had a great time. He, he appreciated the interview and had fun. Well, I love the fact that uh, the both of you, so yeah, welcome in, by thank the way. You. Thank and you. Thank you for Thank you for taking very, time out of your very busy schedule, because I know that that's, you know, time is at a premium these days, given what's all that's going on in your life. Mm. Um, so I think I'm most interested in what what WEX actually does. Like, <laughs> I've done a lot of reading on your company. 
And I am very impressed with the numbers. You just hit a billion dollars, right? which is amazing. You're one of three um, companies that we know of within the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you, There's cards, financial, <laughs> there's travel, there's health. There's a bunch of urban meg- uh, legends around what Wex does. Okay, that, good. That, that I think it's kind of funny. Rob and I were talking about that recently, about all the different ways that people think we do business. But um, to, I guess to make it... The simplest version is everyone that we do business with is a, is a business in, in some way, shape, or form. And what we're trying to do is take where uh, payment, technology, and data intersect. That's a place that we create value. And um, and it's probably easiest to give examples of it. Um, so if you were to go along and you were to book a hotel room and you were to book that with Priceline or uh, Expedia or any virtually any online travel agency, you would pay that hotel with your consumer credit card. But when all the hotels in the world get paid, they're paid behind the scenes with a virtual card that's generated by WAX. And so in that case, what we're doing, we're integrated into the online travel agency systems in a way that creates a lot of uh, efficiency for them when they make a payment, because often a consumer's paying them two or three months in advance, when you go there, you may have a bad experience and you want to actually get uh, a refund of your money. And so for them to track that created uh, you know, a mass of people. And uh, what we did is we went in and said, there's a simpler way of doing that. Let's do that all electronically behind the scenes. And that's a, a part of our business that has grown you know, tremendously over the last 10 years. So that's one example. Uh, other examples for us, uh, if you were the federal government, if you're an employee with the federal government, and you have a vehicle that you're using for consumer for commercial purposes, then you would have a, a wax card, and that wax card would enable you to buy fuel, um, and there would be a series of controls around that that would make sure that you weren't filling up your family car. Um, and depending on who that customer is, and some of those are, are really small businesses, some are really big businesses, they want higher levels of controls and sophistication. And what we try to do is tailor that to whatever the customer wants. Um, And then another example, if you are um, uh, working for a company and you have a tax-deferred account, like an HSA account or an FSA account, we provide technology that's used in order for you to track all the expenses that you're using on that account. So everything we're doing is heavily behind the scenes, which is why I think people don't really understand what we do. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is just make Something that is uh, facilitating payment, we're trying to make that as simple, as easy as possible for the business and so they can focus on growing. This is a big evolution from, what was it, the late 1800s when this whole company began as Wright Express and the focus was on coal. coal. And, <laughs> and, and, yeah. I mean, it seems like that's a fairly straightforward <laughs> thing that we can all understand. And now, more than 100 years later, you're doing something somewhat related to transportation, but in many other ways, not related at all. It's been a really interesting history, if you look back in the company, because I would say we're more of a descendant of A.R. Wright. Um, so family company, cold company, and they had uh, one of the children had an idea, uh, which was to really how to facilitate an electronic payment. And I think back then when people were paying with fuel, they had all those manual receipts, and, and they just wanted to make that simpler. And that was the original concept, and there was a lot of work that went in behind the scenes to make sure that you got acceptance. And in, in any of the, the payment companies like Wax, getting acceptance is, is a really big barrier. And so they spent a number of years, the company was founded in, in 1983, 
and then it became venture-backed in 1985, and it didn't make money until 1993. And so you might imagine that was like a, a you know a long period of of uh, many different uh, rounds of funding. And then from that point forward, from um, you know, I started in '97, and there were five ownership changes in the next five-ish years, uh, and so a lot of different uh, corporate parents, a lot of different changes at at that level. But one of the things that's been great is that this company has continued to grow and thrive despite what was happening in the kind of the dramatic backdrop uh, until we went public in 2005. And that's when we really say we claimed our independence and we became much more secure in the future of the company. And this is important to the state of Maine because you currently have 750 Maine people who are employed here. And it's important around the world because you have 2,700 employees. So all of the things that you just described um, are making it possible for lots of people to make a living. Yeah, when I think about the company, one of the things I think a lot about is is they've got employees that have this visual of all the employees that are um, around the world, and then all their families that are attached to them. So you know, we have, you know, I think uh, quite a bit of impact, and that's a great responsibility. And, and and the fun part is being in a growth company is you create opportunity too. So you have. Um, really the careers of the people that are working there, but as the, the company continues to grow, that, you know, and I'm a great example of that, you, you create opportunity for people. And um, because it grows, it changes every few years. And so it, it feels a little bit different. And it's the core of the company, who we are. I'd say it's very similar to it has been in 20 years, but um, when we went public, that made us very different. And when we became global, that made it very different. And, and I would say in steps, when we first uh, went into uh, something that was global, it was in Australia, and so English speaking, you know, you know, time zone differences, but not a huge difference. But now we're doing business in, uh, throughout Europe. We have an office in Singapore. We have an office in Brazil. And when, where you get into uh, countries that are not English speaking as their primary language. and, and you know, just as it changed the fiber of the business and the company, but also made it richer. So you think of as an employee, you get to now work with people all over the world and you experience things in a, in a different way, which I think is a really additive way. It's interesting that this is happening with WEX at the same time as we were all becoming aware of this whole global citizenship idea that what your company has gone through is really kind of reflective of the changing times. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that um, I think you can get insular in many ways when you think about what you see every day is the best, um, and then you can go into a totally different market where people experience life in a very different way. You know, when you go into Brazil, safety is 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 um, really experienced in a different way. The people that live there, and um, you know, as a result, their products are built with that much more forefront in their mind, um, and and so. Um, I, I think it's interesting as you go from one region to another, you realize that the United States, while um, it's very important, it's not the same experience that's happening around, around the world. And yet, at the same time, you're competing, really, in many ways, on a global basis. And it's something that I think is really important. We have offices um, in 10 different countries. We have 37 offices. And so when we think about how we compete for talent, we think about it globally. Uh, we think about Maine and how it competes on a global level and, and how important that is because the companies that we're competing against are global companies. And 
you know, and they can uh, shift employees into different regions of the world or really pick up on innovation in different parts of the world in a way that we also have to be thinking about. And uh, so I think of that as, as a big positive, but also something that we have to be more thoughtful about as we've gotten bigger and gone into more of that global world. And your your husband, Brian Corcoran, his Shamrock Sports also has definitely national and perhaps really international mm-hmm. interests as well. So that's an, that's an interesting thing. I mean, there are different types of industries, certainly, and his is a smaller business, but it must create lots of kind of fascinating conversations <laughs> in that. Yeah, vein. dinner conversations yeah. are probably different than most people's. Um, yeah, it, I... I think what Brian does is so fascinating to me, probably because it's so very different. You know, he, most people don't think about the, the business of sports and, you know, that's the, the world that he lives in. And at the same time, um, he gets to experience these, you know, really fun events. And so there's a, there's a fun part of what he does. There's a really hard part of what he does, you know, because his business is largely about selling. And, and um, you know, that's, that's a difficult part of the business to be in. But at the same time, he gets to go to some pretty amazing events, and I've been able to go to some of those with him. And so we've been able to go to the Olympics in London, and I've been to the Kentucky Derby, and you know, kind of go on and on and different things we've done over the, the years that we've been together. And um, and you know, what he likes about that is the the pride in the event, you know, because at the end of the day, someone is deciding to sponsor that, and you want to make sure that the people who go are entertained that they have a good experience and uh, and you know often these are world-class events and you know one of the things that he's been passionate about is bringing some of those to Maine which has been a, you know, a great way to create economic development you grew up in a pretty small town yes I'm not really sure even where it is because <laughs> I read on the map because <laughs> I read the name of it and I was like oh I've been to the county a lot but and so where where did you grow up? So I grew up in Wynn, Maine, which is uh, about an hour north of Bangor. It's uh, in Penobscot County, but the northern part of Penobscot County. And I grew up on a farm, so um, you know, middle of nowhere. I think there were 450 people in my hometown. There's no traffic lights. Uh, everybody knows everybody. It's it's a great place to grow up. We grew up with animals, so we had horses and dogs and cats and rabbits and you name it. And um, and I think some of the things you learn from growing up in a small town, you, you learn the importance of community because everybody has to really participate. There really isn't an option. And I also think that um, growing up in, a, in a, that part of Maine, um, there's there's a lot of poverty there. And I, th- I think that's, uh, in many ways, a, a, a good way to grow up. And it's going to sound wrong, but, um, but I think you, I grew up very grounded in what you need and what you want, and that those are two different things in life. And the people that I grew up with are incredibly happy, fulfilled, um, and that's without lots of material things. And and I think that is an important part. You know, now living in southern Maine, it's, it, it's in many ways a very different experience than the, than the Maine that I uh, really understood and grew up with when I first started. And there were three of you, three kids? Well, so I come with one of those um, non-traditional families, and so there are three girls, um, and my mother married somebody, my mother remarried when I was five, and she married somebody who had five children. 
And so we were the Brady Bunch. And so uh, three of his uh, children, his three younger ones, and us three girls lived together. His two uh, older ones were, um, you know, old enough on their own that they didn't ever live with us. And so there were six kids and, uh, like I said, all kinds of animals. And it was, I'm used to chaos in my life. That's why I'm I'm pretty good with chaos. Um, but, you know, again, great. And my stepfather was, you know, a, a very important part of my life. He had unfortunately passed away a, a little over a year ago. But, you know, he's been in my life since I was two years old. And so, you know, really, he's been the rock in my life. And he also taught me how important it is how men treat women because he was so great to my mother. He adored her, which was a wonderful thing to see growing up. I, I would guess that in addition to the small town sense of community, growing up in a household of six, there's also, and you said you grew up on a farm. Yes. So there's there's shared responsibilities sort of all the way around. Yes. Yeah. The, there. Well, it's interesting. My mother had this philosophy on children, um, your only child wants. And so she had this balance of uh, giving us a lot of freedom to have fun. Um, and at the same time, there was, a, there was, you know, this kind of stick of responsibility <laughs> that was always in the background. Um, but she wanted to make sure that there were some of each. And so we all had responsibilities and there things like, as a family, we would bring in hay every year. And bringing in hay meant I drove a, a big, huge, old hay truck when I was literally just old enough to see over the wheel. Um, and what I learned from that is if you dumped the hay trap, you had to reload it yourself. And so you learned pretty quickly that you had to do it well, uh, otherwise you're going to redo it. Um, and then when, when the next sibling uh, got to that point, you, you kind of got kicked out, and then you had to actually load the truck. And so you had this kind of order of how things happened. And we learned pretty quickly to uh, really bring all our friends with us and make it into a big party. And so you made the work as fast and as easy as possible and fun. And... So there's things like that. I mean, bringing in wood. There were there were rites of of you know, passage, I guess, if you will. That, you know, part of living there that you all had to contribute. But we also got to ride horses and you know do a lot of fun things. And so it wasn't all work. How did the University of Maine prepare you academically to do what you're doing now? That's a great question. So I, I, my mother went to the University of Maine. My grandmother went to the University of Maine. Um, ironically, they went about the same time. Um, and so when it came for me to go to school, I, I would say my first economic lesson was my mother sitting down and saying, honey, you can go to school anywhere you want in the world, and let's do the math, or you could go to the University of Maine. But my mom worked there, and so I could go relatively inexpensively. And, um, you know, I think at the time, that I was interested in spreading my wings a little bit more, but it became more of a financial consideration. But I feel like I got a really great education. And I think for me, one of my first classes, when I, when I first went there, I knew I wanted to study business, but I didn't know really what that meant because um, you don't get a lot of exposure when you grow up in a small town of what the options even are. And um, my first year, I was taking some accounting classes, and I used to get these notes back from the accounting professor that would say, you should consider this to be your major. And I thought, that how boring is that? <laughs> you know, like accounting, really? Um, and, uh, it, and then he started talking to me, and he started talking to me about what public accounting was like and, and how that's different. You actually get to go and travel and... and see uh, you know how different companies work and 
he kind of led me there in, in many ways, you know, over a series of, of a few years. Um, so even though I went to a, a school that has a, a larger number of students, it didn't feel that way in many ways. And I think that I was really lucky. He became one of my first mentors and and really had a lot to do with, with what I chose to do and, and really setting me into going into public accounting, which I feel like was a really good experience and I would advocate that for any child um, growing up because you learn uh, almost immediately, you learn how to deal with people because you have to deal with customers. You're sent out into the field and you work with, with customers. Um, you work with different um, peers constantly and you almost immediately start supervising. It's within the first couple of years and so then you learn how to actually um, understand that not everybody's the same and their ability to learn and how they're going to succeed is very different and you have to, in order for you to be successful, you have to be able to um, really adapt to their individual needs. and. Um, so I feel like that was a really good experience for me just out of school. But I, I think University of Maine actually heavily prepared me for that. And I felt like, um, you know, some of that was the experience I had with one of my professors. You've been a big proponent of early and well-done STEM education within the state of Maine and education in general. Is this because you just generally have a love of the state of Maine? Is this because you have more concerted interest in getting people to be highly educated so that you can get them to wax? Or both? It's, it's both. I, mean, I, I care. STEM-related fields are interesting to me because I understand how much more earnings capacity you create if you go into one of those fields. And um, there's a practicality associated with going into those fields that um, that sometimes feels like it's missing. And um, and at the same time, Wex as an employer is heavily dependent on our ability to track talent in those fields. And so our the jobs that we're adding will add over a hundred in Maine this year will be largely STEM related. So they're they're going to be in the technology areas, um, some of them in the finance areas, and. So I, th I think it's important. I also think that as we compete for talent globally, that Maine has to really think about how we transform our ability to really develop talent, which starts with education and then retain talent. Um, I think it's, it's a big issue for us, and it's something that we see as we're out into the marketplace. And so it's, it's, there's a little bit that's a passion point for me around making sure that um, just making sure that the the state is thriving. It's really important to me. It's been a great state to grow up in. I feel like I've gotten a lot of benefit from living here, and I want to make sure I get back to that. But also there's the more practical part of it. As an employer headquartered here, um, there's, there's certain disadvantages, and I want to make sure that we really... Um, really do something about that. And, and I feel like we have so much opportunity there. We are located... Um, central to one of the largest economies in the world with the whole, whole Boston hub. We have a great quality of life. When I go out into the marketplace and recruit people to come live here, it, you know, people are increasingly interested of in what we have to offer. Um, and when they come and live here, they never go back. I, mean, I, I have yet to have someone come and relocate here and say, you know, uh, I made a mistake, I want to move my family away from here. It's, it's the opposite. It's, it's I really have roots here. 
Um, and often what I'll hear, I'd say almost universally, when they bring children, they talk about how it just creates a settling feeling. Um, not that they're not going to have high expectations in their school, but they, l- they lose a little bit of the social pressure that they're having in, in some other regions. And so I, I, and at WAX, I feel like we work just as hard as, as if they were someplace else, but they spend less time commuting. And so they have a higher quality of life as a result. So there's a lot to offer in the state. And I think in Portland in particular, you know, has, has really just blossomed in the period of time that I've lived in this area. So the issue of children is interesting because you just came back or are transitioning back. I'm back. You're back. <laughs> I'm back. You're back. You're here. <laughs> um, from birth of your twins. Yes. And you and your son Baxter is now two. Two and a half. Two and a half. Yes. So you have eleven currently eleven week old twins. Yes. And Baxter. Yes. <laughs> so the idea of family and raising a family in a family-friendly atmosphere is very important to you. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's easier to have the type of partnership that you have with your husband in the state of Maine or in this part of the world than it might be in other places? Well, definitely in when you broaden it to the world. And I think that we're lucky in many ways to live in the, in the United States. I feel lucky as a woman to live in the United States um, and actually in Maine to have the career that I have. I, I feel like that's a piece of it. Um, I, I think that, he, you know, Brian is a, he's a great partner um, and he enables me to do um, what I need to do and vice versa. You know, we, we really think of this as a partnership and how we're going to help each other out. And, um, and at the same time, we rely pretty heavily on our extended family. Now, we're very lucky. My mother, as an example, uh, stayed here for the winter. She would normally go to Arizona for the winter, and so she's been forefront uh, working with us. His parents are very actively involved, and so um, it, it, we hear relying on the nucleus of our family, and that's been important. But I, I don't know if I were to say Maine versus some other part of the country. I, I don't know that that's different. Um, I do think there's there's a little bit of benefit as a woman in my career of being in Maine, um, and I think that there's a little bit of that independence thing that we have here that <laughs> that I think plays well into that. Um, and I, but I certainly do think if I compare other places in the world I could be living, you know, this is uh, a much more beneficial place. And I also think Maine is one of those places that allow independence, which helps Brian with his business. And, and so, you know, I, I think that there's probably a, a, a whole series of things coming together that are helpful to us. I understand that you just um, instituted a family leave for eight weeks paid after the birth of a child within WEX. Correct me if I'm wrong. Six weeks. Six weeks. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Still very generous. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So what, what prompted that? Um, I, yeah, I feel like it's um, it's in the category of do the right thing. You know, when when I started looking at the ways that uh, leave is considered around the world, it's a place that the United States is largely lagging compared to the rest of the developed world, and so um, it felt like a trend that was coming to us. And I'd rather be on the front part of that trend because I, again, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. And for us, that the 
feedback that we're giving leave out and they were agnostic if it's the male or the female um, um, partner, you know, whatever it happens to be, that we wanted to make sure that we're thoughtful about that. And, and that I felt strongly about too, is that I wanted to make sure that it wasn't really designed um, to think about things in, in an old-fashioned way. It was really more representative of the way things work now. And, and it's been actually great. That's one of the, those uh, fun parts of my job when you when you do something like that and you get notes back from people that give you personal stories about how that decision affected their lives. It's, it's incredibly satisfying. Um, so I, I think, again, it, we'll see more businesses make that trend uh, over time in the United States because I think that we're just lagging with, with how people think about this on a more global basis. For people who are thinking about what their next career step might be, what do you think WEX has to offer? Oh, WEX has so much to offer. <laughs> uh, you know, I start with it, the things that uh, that they, the former CEO the, who actually had recruited me um, the things he said to me I think are still true and he said it's the type of place that an individual can make a difference which was incredibly appealing to me um, and that your performance affects your trajectory and um, and I think we're at this great stage as, as a business where we're not so small that we're worried about whether or not we're gonna make payroll but we're not so big even at a billion dollars of revenue that um, that it's it's hard to move and um, and so I, I like the the phase that we're in I like the global interaction um, the jobs that we have you can you can really see this coming through our employee satisfaction surveys they're interesting work that people are doing um, they feel like they're making a difference we have a great culture and our culture is really founded on the idea of not just what you do but how you do it and we reward people with, um, we do a, what we call a President's Club trip every year. And we pick, uh, this year we pick 45 people. So highly selective, I, mean, I think 2,700 employees, but 45 people win. Anybody in the company can nominate anybody else. And we pick it based on what they do and how they do it, um, which means it can't all be about sharp elbows that actually have to do things in a more collaborative way. Um, and then we take them and whoever they choose to go with them on to a trip someplace. This year we announced we're going to, to uh, Portugal. And so um, I feel like that's embedded in who the company is from a cultural perspective and it has been true before I started. And um, it's part of what I want to make sure that we continue to foster. There really is a relationship orientation in the company that I think is, is really great. Well, it's been a pleasure. I think we could probably <clears throat> fill a few different hours <laughs> talking about this um, because I think you're doing really interesting things. And um, well, thank you. I, I I really appreciate the time that you're taking to come in and talk to me today and anybody who's listening. I encourage people to look into Wax if if that's something that you think would be a good fit in your life. www.waxinc.com. Um, I love it. That's <laughs> great. And also we will be featuring Melissa in an upcoming issue of Oldport Magazine, so you can also read the profile there. I've been speaking with Melissa Smith, who is the president and CEO of Wex Inc., located in South Portland. Keep up the good work. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Love Main Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. 
For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is William J. Ryan Jr., who is the principal owner and chairman of the Maine Red Claws. I believe it's okay that we call you Bill. Bill's great. Bill's great. (laughs) Which held their inaugural season in the fall of 2009. Ryan also has investments in real estate, restaurants, and early-stage technology companies. And I believe you also once owned the Oxford Plains Speedway. I did for 14 years. Yeah, so you've been out and about for quite a while. I can't, uh, I guess I have a short attention span maybe and uh, move from thing to thing, I guess. Well, that's all right, because we, uh, we like talking to people who have had many lives here. Um, you've actually been an attorney as well. Yeah, so I, uh, I was uh, in college, and my parents kept calling me and saying, what are you going to do with your life? And uh, so one day they woke me up, and I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And uh, that got smile and approval, and they didn't bother me for, uh, for the rest of the, my senior year. So, uh, so that was my well-thought-out process of uh, how, you know, what my career was going to be. Um, but I actually I li- I liked law school, and then when I got out and found out what lawyers actually did, I was kind of puzzled that anybody would actually want to do it. Um, and uh, so I hated it, but I had, uh, I think when I started, my wife was pregnant. We had uh, four kids in five years when I was, when I was doing it, so I kind of needed a job. So I stuck with it till I could figure out what else to do and, uh, and moved on from there. But it was a good experience. It's good training. It's good background for business. But, uh, but, you know, it's great for some people. It just wasn't for me. I wish I had thought of that a little bit better before I just made a snap decision to, to be, be a lawyer. Well, so what was it about being a lawyer that you that you thought was good training and maybe just didn't work for you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the good training part is you, you get to spot a lot of potential problems in business before they get to be problems, right? You can tell going into something, geez, this contract is not going to work or, you know, there's a risk here that could be covered by insurance or, you know, what's what happens if X, Y, Z happens? You know, how do we, how do we handle that as a business relationship and kind of take care of it beforehand so it doesn't become acrimonious later you know if something goes wrong you want to you want to make sure you figure out how to how to fix that before um, before it becomes a problem so um, that was you know that's a good training part what I didn't like is uh, is you know most of it is it's not very uh, you know you're not in a courtroom you know arguing and and it's not very glorious you're mostly in your office um, selling your time is what you're selling so it really takes away from interaction with your fellow human beings to some extent, right? Because if your office mate comes by and says, "Hey, how you doing? You watch a ball game last night?" All you're doing is looking at your watch and going, "Oh man, now I got to stay at work five minutes later," because you're selling your time. So you become one of the, you know, I ate, ate lunch at my desk, you know, and and never really left uh, because I had little kids at home and and you know my, I was already working enough that my wife wasn't super psyched to have me. Um, be there till you know eight at night or something you know and uh, so that that was the hardest part for me is that you know my natural inclination was to care about the people around me and what their lives were and and then but I was selling my time so I you know you'd have to kind of ferret yourself into your, your little your little office and and do your work and try to do it as quickly as you could and uh, get it done but yeah so it's, I, if a lot of people like it you know it just wasn't for me well I think that's an interesting um, point that you make that something can be really um, worthwhile 
and worth doing and maybe just not the right thing for an individual person. Sure. But it, it takes, it, it, sometimes it's difficult to get to that place and get to the place where you say, all right, so what is right for me? So how did you, you know, you still have those children, right? Yeah, you still, yeah, you still yeah, have the why, yeah, wife. Yeah. So uh, how did you get to that place? Yeah, so it was, it was interesting. Um, we represented, the firm I was with represented a guy by the name of Bob Bear. And Bob owned New Hampshire International Speedway at that point, which was a NASCAR track. Um, and I became, I knew Bob a little bit. I didn't work on his stuff, but I, I knew him through a couple of different ways. And from him being at the firm to, you know, uh, from the firm doing work for him, I became fascinated with that business, the racing business. And it wasn't anything I really knew about. Uh, prior to that, I grew up outside of Boston. There's not a lot of, you know, car racing wasn't big outside of Boston. Um, but I became fascinated with it as a business. And this is the early 90s, kind of before NASCAR has kind of, uh, you know, kind of risen. And now it's kind of fallen back a little bit. But um, so I, I decided that that's, I wanted to be in that business somehow. And uh, long, long story short, I was able to uh, find a, a guy in Massachusetts who had a, a sports marketing company and had been heavily involved in racing. And if you've ever seen a race car, they have 28 different names all over them. You know, it's everything from Budweiser to on and on and on. And um, that was his business. He would he would act as a middleman between race teams and, and big companies out there and say, like, you should be on this car because you will get this much notice and you can have your clients come to races. And so I talked my way to a job with him. And the, the legal training was was something that was attractive to him because it's a heavily contractual work. And uh, it was a revelation for me because um, I came from that highly regulated, highly strict world of law where everything was, you know, you, you put on a belt and then you put on another belt and then you put on suspenders and then, you know, the third belt just for extra, you know, extra uh, safety and support. And I went with him um, and he was a real sales guy and, and we could do anything, you know, a client would, or a potential client would say, can you do X, Y, Z, A, B, C? And his answer was always yes, because he would figure out how to do it. Whereas my answer was, geez, can we do that? And, you know, like, how are we going to do that? And he's, you know, he kind of introduced me to the world of, uh, yeah, you'll figure it out, you know, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't being deceptive in any way. He was just much more open, um, open to making things happen. Whereas I was in that world, like, you know, geez, let's, let's check uh, the, the 92 things that could happen that would be wrong with that plan. Whereas he was like, yeah, that may, there may be 92 things wrong, but there's 120 things that are right. So it was, that was, he was probably a guy by the name of Paul Lufkin. He's probably the most influential person in my life, really, in terms of more business life. So you owned Oxford Plains for 14 years. Yeah. And, and then where, what happened? It, well, during that time frame, um, uh, I was approached by somebody, because I was in the sports business, was approached by somebody, just a cold call, a guy that had worked for the Celtics years before, and said that he wanted to start a professional basketball team someplace in New England that was going to be in the NBA Development League. Um, and, you know, I hadn't really, to be honest, I, hadn't, I was a huge Celtics fan and always have been from growing up outside of Boston, but I wasn't really in tune with what the NBA Development League is. What I did know was two professional basketball teams had failed in Maine before. So I returned the call anyway, you know, and went to a meeting. And uh, I thought it was an interesting idea the more, the more I learned about it. Um, and, you know, the lawyer in me said, all right, what's the, what's the downside risk? And if, can we eliminate that? And, and how do we eliminate it? Um, and if we can't eliminate it, you can never eliminate it all. But, you know, how do you, how do you mitigate it and make it so it's not going to, you know, not going to kill you? Um, 
and then on the the other side of was like all right what's the upside here you know what what can we do so after kind of doing that analysis for a bit um i thought it was a good idea um i talked my, my father was retiring at that point he's the ex uh, ceo of td bank uh here in, in portland so he was retiring and um he liked the idea as a basketball fan so you know he said all right you call five of your friends i'll call five of my friends we'll put together an ownership group um, and so that's what we did. So, you know, my father and I are the, the, the majority owners of the team, and, uh, and uh, we have uh, partners that are people from across, uh, probably people that you've interviewed, you know, people from, uh, from Maine that uh, are influential in the community, and it's, it's been great. It's been a great experience. We just are finishing our eighth season and starting playoffs tonight, um, which is fun, and, uh, but it's, uh, it's been good. Sports uh, is an interesting thing because it, it really – there's really such a significant community um, around it. So whether you're a part of the Red Sox nation or whether you're a Patriots fan um, or a Red Claws fan, really, it, you've automatically got this group of people that you can talk to and you can interact with and that you can have conversations with. Is that part of what attracted you to becoming an owner of the Red Claws? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. It is. It's It's that built in, you know, if you're, you know, when you're at a, when you're at a game, you know, the, the person next to you, you know, they're a fan. You know they're probably a fan of the team that, that you know that you're a fan of, and you have that that natural ability to talk to them. And I, th- I think even when I was in the racing business, um, you know that there's a it's a, there's a wide demographic for for racing, and it, it, it's interesting because I, you know. Um, I could talk to anybody from you know the guy fixing my car. I know nothing about fixing cars, but a lot of you know a lot of guys that fix cars are into cars and stuff. And so, you know, they maybe recognize that me from the Speedway or something, or um, and I could have a long conversation with them about racing, right? And you have that in common. And um, and I still bump into people all the time that are, uh, you know, that I know from racing that are, you know, just all walks of life but but often something you know a delivery driver or something like that you know or or something like an occupation uh um that has to deal with maybe cars or something (laughs) and it's always funny because we'll go back to talking about about racing and and basketball is the same too you know it's a it's it's a different has a different demographic i would say um but you know you have that that universal language that you can talk about you know did you see that game last night or you know, uh, uh, what do you think of the Celtics? What do you, you know? So it is. It's it's a, it's a community in a in a lot of good ways and can can be in bad ways too. You know, I think when you when you have, uh, uh, when you're a fan of the Patriots and and you, you hate the fans of you know whoever it is. I mean, I, to me that's ridiculous. I always kind of I, I my uh, my family's from New York. And uh, they're all Yankee fans, right? So I, I grew up in Boston, and it would be one of those things. Oh, you're supposed to hate Yankee fans. I'm like, I can't hate my grandmother. My grandmother's a Yankee fan, you know. So I never had that, you know, that that like, oh, you got to hate Yankee fans or something, you know. So it was, um, there's a lot of good to it, but it can be destructive too. Yeah. So so how do you handle that? I mean, I, I'm I have a, an awareness of sports. My kids are all <laughs> sure. they all follow sports. Yeah. Um, their dad follows sports. I never had that sort of same passion. Yeah. So when they would say, you know, oh, Yankees suck, I'd be right. like, oh, do they? Do you have to be? And I'm sorry to anybody who's listening who feels strongly that <laughs> yeah. Yankees do suck. Yeah. But how, how do you negotiate that? I, I just, you know, it's kind of it's silly to me. I, I think that, you know, you just have to realize that it's just a game at the end of the day. And, and I think I've... Uh, Trust me, I've been caught up in games, you know, whether it's my kids' games or Red Claws games or Patriots games. And 
Uh, if my kids listen to this, they'll laugh at me saying that, oh, you don't, don't overreact to it because they've seen me certainly overreact to a lot of games. Um, but I think as, you know, as, as maybe as you get older and you get a little bit wiser and you realize that, hey, the, you know, if the Red Claws lose tonight, I'm still going to be here tomorrow and, and get up and do all the things that I do. And um, sure, I want them to win, but uh, but it's, you know, life goes on. And, and I'm much more that way. You know, I, if I was happy when the Patriots won the Super Bowl, really happy. I'm sure I jumped up and down for a while. Um, but if they had lost, I would have been unhappy for 15 minutes and got up the next day and moved on. So I think you just have to recognize that it's it's not life and death. It's just uh, it's just fun, you know. It's talking to people that I've worked with over the years in sports. My my line to them always is like, "We're not curing cancer, you know. We're just we're just having, hopefully giving people a night out where they can smile and laugh and have fun and watch a good game or a good race or whatever it is. You know, it's I don't think it's unimportant, but it's not serious. You know, it's not it's not uh, if you know, if the if if the Red Sox don't play today or do or whatever, it's really doesn't affect anybody's life. You know, it's not a life and death thing. It's it's just sports. You know, so well, some people might argue. Yeah, no, I, I know I they. Won't, but some people. No, might. they do. It's funny, you know, and then people expect me to, to maybe to be more passionate about uh, about sports than I than I am because I've been involved in it. I think maybe through being involved in it, you kind of recognize that. You know, maybe it's it can be overstated. Its importance can be overstated somewhat. You know, not that it's you know it's important to me, but it's uh, again, there's a lot of things that are <laughs> that are much more important than wh- whether or not the the Patriots win or the Red Claws win or the Red Sox win. Was there something about the fact that your father was so high up at TD Bank, and that banking is very similar to law? That it's kind of structured and yeah, lots of regulations. Yeah. Was there something about that that you needed to almost kind of break free of in order to get into these other businesses? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean that was all I was ever exposed to. You know, the the rest of my uh, rest of the adults in my life. You know, my uncles and and aunts and stuff were firefighters and cops and that that kind of thing. So. I kind of knew I didn't want to go that that direction. You know, I'm probably too lazy to uh, to be out there doing any kind of heavy uh, heavy duty work like that. So, so my father was the only one that I looked to. He's a banker. You know, my whole my whole life, and um, it is a very ordered thing. And I've I've said to him a million times, I don't know how you do it. And I say that to corporate people that I know all the time. Like, I just couldn't. You know, and um, the the meetings and the you know the hierarchy and the I don't know that that's not me, and maybe it's because I've been kind of out on my own for for so long. Um, on the other side, you know, I've never since I left the, my law the law firm I was with uh, in 1997. Um, there's been no paycheck waiting for me at the end of the week, right? So that's the downside to it. You know, I don't have a boss, and I don't have meetings, and I don't have you know if I don't want them. Um, but again, there's not. You know, there's not that benevolent corporation over my head that's gonna that's gonna be there at the end of the week, whether or not I did my job well that week or didn't do it. You know, you still get that paycheck, and um, there's something to be said for that. Uh, you know, but there's in, for me anyway, there's more to be said about uh, about the freedom that uh, to do a lot of different things. And luckily, it's you know, I'm knocking on wood here. Uh, it's worked out so far. So, um, but yeah, it is a challenge. I mean, there's there's certainly. You know, when I had the racetrack, if you you get three weeks of rain, you can't you can't race in the rain, right? So when you have if you have forty events scheduled for a summer, and it rains, you know, three weekends in a row, say, you could lose, you know, a ten percent of your opportunity to make money for the year. It's like a you know, it's like a retail store that's open three hundred sixty five days, losing thirty six days where they make zero money. You know, so it's it's a challenge to try to figure that 
out in in, in our our world. You know, the, the Red Claws have we have twenty four home games. You know, so we have twenty four opportunities to sell tickets. If it's a blizzard in the middle of February, which we we had one we had one this year, um, and it was uh, you know people don't want to go out, right? It's just um, it was fine. But the you know the the weather the weather report you know everybody the storm center they all got their sweaters on and all that stuff so everybody's kind of scared and um, so you know those are tough days because we probably sold half the amount of tickets that we would have had it been a you know been a nicer day so there's challenges challenges to both sides of things but uh, yeah I certainly I'll say to my father all the time like I don't know how you did it you know even the getting up to the top is hard but even being at the top is is of a big company there's a lot of responsibility i mean you you have thousands and thousands of people like you make a bad decision it can uh, it can really harm a lot of people you know there's a lot of pressure there that i don't think um i don't think people that haven't seen somebody up close in that position recognize um you know i think people at that level they really feel like if i make a wrong decision that's you know it doesn't just affect me it affects all those thousands of people so i don't know there's pluses and minuses to both sides. I'd like that steady paycheck if I if I could get it, but I kind of I kind of like not having to answer to anybody either. Given the background of um, the failure of teams, sure. um, basketball teams in this area, I'm assuming that Red Claws has done better than that because yeah. they're still around. Absolutely. Yeah. So so what have you learned in this process? You know, I think um, it, it was interesting uh, when we first. Uh, when we first started it, the natural inclination for, for everybody um, when we were talking to them was, well, you're going to play at the Civic Center, right? And that seems like the natural place to play. But we figured out pretty quickly that teams in our league, you know, average attendance is probably 3,000, maybe 3,500. Well, that's going to feel and look horrible in the Civic Center, which is 7,200 for basketball, I think. Um so that was a decision to that, that to move to the expo that was uh you know maybe a little bit challenging f- or challenge people's preconceptions at the beginning and you know the expo you know and uh, but we we did a lot of improvements there and it, and it's a great place and now pe- people love watching the team play there um so maybe you know that's i think an example of kind of what what we learned and what we did was to maybe not jump at the obvious thing you know the where where it was well, you got to play here. You got to do this. You got to do that. We kind of looked at it and said, "Well, wait a second. How do we how do we mitigate that downside risk? Right? How do how do we make sure that if we go someplace that's that's just an example. If we go go to a place that's too big for us and it, it doesn't look right and fans don't love it, well, you know, how do we mitigate that risk? We'll play at a smaller place. You know, where where even if you have if you have fifteen hundred people in the expo, which is half full ish. It, it, it still feels great, you know. It still feels it's got a good atmosphere. Kids love it, and you know, you get Crusher, our mascot, running around and all that. So that was, I think, what we learned was like just look at things a little bit differently and and try to figure out like why have teams failed here and and other places, um, and, and you know how do you how do you make sure that you you uh, you don't fail in the same way, right? You could fail in a different way. <laughs> That's always, but don't fail in the same way. And you know, I think the big difference for us was. Uh, having the NBA attached to, the, to our league, the other the other leagues have been independent. Didn't have, you know, those three letters are hugely important. The NBA has a huge fan base, not only here in Maine and uh, but around the world, really. Um, so having that, uh, you know, that attachment to, to the NBA, and then the affiliation with the Boston Celtics, right? People love the Celtics here, um, and which is great, you know, and and the fact that 
you know, the Celtics general manager, Danny Ainge, will come and, you know, come up three or four times a year and sit at the, you know, sit at center court and, and watch the games. And people love seeing him. And we had Brian Scalabrini, who's an ex-Celtic, who, you know, does announcing now. And he was here a week or two ago and, again, sitting courtside and watching. People love that stuff. They feel that connection, you know, that, that like – and everybody feels like they – they know him, you know. Those guys usually sit with me, and somebody will walk by and say, "Danny, I saw you play in this in that game," and you know, and it's really personal and really important to to that person to express to the to the athlete or ex athlete, you know, how much they love watching them play. And people love that, you know. Our, our players come from all the big time colleges, so if you're a Michigan grad, say, uh, eventually we've had guys from Michigan, and people love that too. You know, they're they'll come up to him before the game or after the game and say, oh, I went to University of Michigan and wasn't, you know, I saw this game or that game. So it's uh, it's interesting. But, uh, yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing we learned was, like, figure out how to mitigate all our downside risk to, to avoid failing in some of the ways that other teams had before. So the way you're describing this is that there's this really significant emotional um, component to sports, which, of course, we all know that yeah. sports can make you feel passionate. But, you know, as you're describing – you know, Danny Ainge, and I, I remember watching him play sure. a, a million years ago. Yeah. You know, there's an, it's like He doesn't a, appreciate that when you say a million <laughs> years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I'm old enough now that yeah. it probably was a million years ago. Yeah. Sorry, Danny. But, um, so, but it's, it's almost like having a, a song that you knew when you were in seventh grade that you danced to at the junior yeah. high dance, you know, that it, it becomes locked into you sure. in a way that, um, or, you know, remembering who you watched during, you know, the Winter Olympics. Yep. Um, it, to, so you're providing people not only with this community of the present, but you're connecting them to kind of the, the, themselves in the past. Yeah. Does that come up for you? No, I, absolutely. You're, you're, you're right. You know, I th- think it, you know, when people come up to Danny and tell him about watching him play or the ga- this game or that game, it's funny because it, you can see grown, grown men or grown women who revert back to being 10 years old, right? Because that was when they saw, you know, we've had Tommy Heinsohn come up, another former Celtic and Hall of Famer and announcer. And you get people that are 60 years old that saw him play, or maybe even older than that because he's in his 80s, and, and they get like, oh, you know, they get emotional and almost like kids and revert back. So there is a, there is a lot of that... Uh, a lot of that looking back towards towards the past and and uh yeah so it's interesting and and i again i'm not the guy who can tell you who the backup point guard for you know the the university of iowa was last year but we have people that can you know that are fans and when they see you know the backup point guard for the university of iowa somehow make a team in our league you know they'll say i remember that you know they get up very enthusiastic about it and um so yeah there is a there is a lot of emotion attached to it you have Four children, all you said, eighteen to twenty-three. Eighteen to twenty-three, yeah, exactly. So they're right in that interesting range where they're where you could theoretically call them, wake them up, and say, "Hey, what are you going to do with your life?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what what would you like to see happen <laughs> with them? Yeah, I I um because of kind of the, the the life that I've led, where I did something uh, that I thought I was supposed to do initially, like it seemed like, well, you got to do something like law, right? Um, and I was really unhappy. I don't know if I expressed that, but like when I say unhappy, like my headache started the second I got to the office, like every day, you know, and didn't 12 hours later, it, it you know, didn't go away. Um, so I've always told them, you know, it's kind of one of these cliche things, but I actually really feel strongly that I, I want them to be able to support themselves, but, but have, you know, have fun and enjoy what they're doing. You know, life's too short to, 
you know, do something you don't want to do. Now we all, we obviously we all have to do things we don't want to do. You know, it's not all, uh, you know, it's not all happiness every day at whatever your job is. But you know, I'll give you an example. My son's the only one out of college yet, and uh, he got very interested in the whole craft beer world a couple of years ago. So I'm like, great, you know, and I put him in touch with some people, and he wound up working, you know, for a couple local places here, and now he's down in Boston and works for a place called Trillium Brewing, and um, he's in production, right? So. So he's up every morning at four or five a.m. to to get there to make the beer. Basically, is what he's doing. And uh, so he just graduated from Colby in, in in May of last year. So my my joke is to him is like, well, you know, spend about two hundred and sixty or so thousand dollars on your education. You work at a factory, but I'm it's not. I'm happy for him. Like that's cool. Like in the education, you know, he, he was a philosophy major, right? So nothing goes better with philosophy than a couple beers right you sound smarter after a couple beers everybody every philosophy is better and, and so but i think that's uh you know I'm, I'm i he loves it you know he's supporting himself and uh so i think that's been my message to them is to don't think you have to do you know don't think you have to be a lawyer because that's the only way you can be successful you, there's a lot a lot of paths to success and if you're if you can be happy along the way that's a that's a, a much better thing than uh you know than just to be a cog and cog in some kind of wheel that you don't want to be a cog in I think that's fair. It's okay to be a cog in the wheel as long as you want to be a cog. Yeah, if you want to be a cog, you're right. Like like I said, there's there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of people that, that, that when I was practicing law that loved it and, and loved it for good reasons. You know, they could they could just leave it at the end of the day. Right. It wasn't you know, and that's the other downside. All the I've been in a lot of different businesses in addition to the sports business. But I've had my phone in my pocket from the time I get up to the time I go to bed for the last 20 years and have and get calls at 11 o'clock at night saying not so much now but but still now even even with the red claws like we got a travel issue like where the team is stuck in you know iowa and we got to figure out like what do you want us to do like the you know the flights out of here we can get this one flight out of here but it's you know an extra 500 bucks a person kind of thing and we're flying 15 guys around and um so i still get those calls and then I, i've had you know, I've had businesses like that for a long time, so it's never. Uh, there is a there is something to be said for if you can, you know, you leave work at work at six o'clock, and I think that's a lot of people, you know, that I worked with at the, the law firm felt like that. You know, you you weren't going to get that call. Um, so, but you know, it's it's interesting. It makes 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 life interesting, I guess. Well, I know that you are a very busy person, so I really appreciate your coming in and having this conversation with me today. I learned something about the Red Claws, probably a little bit of something about racing, which yeah. honestly I didn't know anything about. I've been speaking with uh, William J. Ryan Jr., also known as Bill, the principal owner and chairman of the Maine Red Claws, and also um, generally involved in many other different industries. So I, I really appreciate your having this conversation with me. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 294, Building Maine Businesses. Our guests have included Melissa Smith and William J. Ryan Jr. For more information about Melissa Smith, read this month's issue of Old Port Magazine. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. 
We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Building Maine Businesses show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.